Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So, what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. My mother lost her battle to cancer when she was 56 years old. And so here I am at 57. So my 57th birthday was so important because I wanted to reach and bypass that milestone. She found out she had cancer right at the same age that I did at 55. My name is Donna Otis. I live in San Diego, California. I am a stage four metastatic cancer fighter. How do I say this without crying? I'm a mom, I'm a single mom, I love life, and cancer will never define me. Hi everyone, I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. You know, March may be Colon Cancer Awareness Month, but as many of you know, my mission has been to increase awareness of this second leading cancer killer every day of the year. So, We've put together a special episode on this topic with the hopes that it will motivate many of you to call your doctor and get screened. As a lot of you all know, my first husband, Jay, died, gosh, 23 years ago. He had been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. He battled the disease for nine months and then died at just 42. I've been advocating for early detection ever since. I even got a colonoscopy on television. I'm a little nervous. Sure, that's... Is that normal? Normal. Normal. How do you feel? Well, today I wanted to see where we are in terms of research, detection, and treatment, and also understand why our country still has such vast health disparities that leave Black Americans more susceptible to this disease than others. 
You'll be hearing from two of the top scientists in this area a bit later. But first, I wanted to start with my friend Donna. Early detection is so important. Donna Otis is the CEO of a private golf club in San Diego. And a couple of years ago, we got to talking and I learned about her colon cancer diagnosis. In preparing for this episode, I asked if she would be willing to share her story, and she bravely agreed. I did not get a colonoscopy at 50. I did one of those um, colonase, you know, just kind of those quick tests, and nothing came up. I was in San Francisco at the time. Uh, I was 51, and I actually, so not to get too graphic, but it's reality. I had um, blood in my stool. And I thought, well, did I eat something wrong? And so I did the, the, I let the hospital know they sent me a kit and it came back negative. So I said, okay. And then fast forward another year and I was 52 and I noticed again, it had stopped and then I noticed again. So I went back to the hospital and they said, okay, try, try another stool um, sample test. So I did that, came back negative. And then one day in August, 2018, I started to feel like my stomach wasn't right. Um, and I was in some pain in the intestinal area. And then I said, well, let me just go see and check it out, go to the doctors. And that's when they said, you know, let's, let's do a colonoscopy. And, you know, when I woke up, they said, hmm, we, we see something a little strange. Um, let's, let's take a look at it a little closer and let's get a biopsy. And, you know, it took a couple of months to get all the biopsies and the tests done. And I, oddly enough, I happened to be driving to Santa Barbara, um, with a, with a friend of mine and, you know, you can open everything up on your, on your chart. It's the day and age of technology. Now you can opt not to look at it and say, I'm going to wait until the doctor brings you into the office, but everything, your test results, your um, CT scans, all of that comes right to your phone now. And I open it up and clear as day, there's that word, cancer. I put my phone down and I didn't want to say anything and I opened it back up again. And not only was it cancer, but it was labeled as stage three. And I thought, crap, didn't want to call anybody. I just wanted to try and digest it. And my, I went into fight or flight mode. Like, okay, what am I going to do with my 22 year old daughter? She was 20 at the time. And how am I going to take care of things? And that's just, that was my immediate reaction. Like, crap, I'm not ready. And the appointments, biopsies and CT scans that followed, Donna got more bad news. Hmm, sorry, it's now, it has traveled to your liver. And then the next blow after the full um, CT scan was, well, we think it's in your lungs too. So um, I I said, okay, this really can't be happening. So I went into this whole disbelief mode. um, And then being a single mom, you know, what am I going to do with my job and how am I going to live? You know, just all those things come rushing through, um, rushing through your head. And someone said to me, you know, Donna, you really don't know how strong you are until the only thing you can be is strong. 
Donna's co-workers and friends rallied around her. She asked for help and gathered her village. Meanwhile, she got her treatment plan and before she knew it, was on the cancer diagnosis roller coaster ride. I started chemo in December of 2018 and then I did chemo all the way through till September of 2020. My first round of chemo was okay. Um, the second round, I had a severe allergic reaction. I couldn't walk or talk. You physically cannot touch anything remotely cold, not even a doorknob, this huge painful uh, tingling sensation. My eyes completely shut because of the nerve endings. You go like this and you get a handful of hair. I couldn't take care of myself. I really just wanted to die. I think at that point I just said, okay, let's let's pack it up. Let's Let's get everything situated. Let's get a living will. And um, I had those tough conversations with my daughter to say, listen, um, we're going to fast track your life a little bit. You're going to have to be an adult fairly quickly here. And you forget about things like teaching your kid some of your old mom's recipes. Um, you forget to teach your kid or you think about it like, well, I can always teach her, you know, how to sew a button on a shirt. Donna found the strength as she has at every turn. And the treatments continued. I went through radiation, 30 rounds of radiation. Skin turns dark, extremely painful. After you leave, you have to wear a pump for 48 hours. So, you know, when you go to work and you see the tube hanging and everyone's looking at me like, you doing okay? And I said, don't feel sorry for me. Don't treat me any different, God damn it. <laughs> I've gone through two surgeries. Um, the first surgery was to remove part of my liver, uh, to remove my rectum. The post-surgery and waking up to this bag that is out of your body and you can see your intestine, which is out of your body as well. Um, it's pretty difficult. And the type of clothes you have to wear, you can only wear certain very, you know, loose and baggy clothes. And you have to time your release of your bag at a certain time because sometimes it could just really blow up. But this, I made this bag define me. Um, and it took over me for, for about a year, um, pretty, feeling pretty sad, feeling sorry for myself. But then, um, but then my daughter said to me, but mom, you wake up every day on this side of the world. Don't worry about the bag. And then my second surgery was in November of 2020 uh, to do the reversal, meaning put my intestines back, get everything all attached. And then after radiation, um, you know, you do the surgery and then you go into chemo mode. Um, and so after one chemo treatment, your body gets sort of immune to it, and then they shift you to another. And then the other was another strong poisonous chemo that wreaked havoc, um, but I had to do it. And that almost left me with um, complete hair loss. And then from there, you know, we're just fighting for time. And so I got the, the final news was, or not the final news, but... The news was, Donna, you will never be cured of, of cancer. You will have to do chemo for the rest of your life. 
until you pass. And we can't determine whether it's two or three years. Um, it's hard to say. And so, you know, you keep on getting, you know, you're like one of those, um, those uh, toys as a kid that's a plastic thing. It's got a base and you keep on knocking it over, but it stands right back up. Well, I felt like I was, I was one of those, um, but I got right back up because I had no choice. Recently, Donna got the chance to join an immunotherapy trial, which marks a new experimental phase of treatment, one that's giving her and everyone who loves her hope. We're going to see how it goes. The doctor's like, hang in there. Let's just try this immunotherapy, blast out that tumor, and then uh, and then we'll kind of take it from there. So here I am uh, today. and. I'm going to live till tomorrow, and I'm going to keep on going. This May, Donna is taking an important trip. She'll travel to Kentucky and watch her daughter graduate from college. A huge emotional milestone for both of them. That was what I was living for. That was my first target, was um, when they gave me two years. And I was like, crap, I won't be able to see her graduate. And that was in my head. So, um, so that's done uh, pretty quick here in a couple months. And then my, my next target is, uh, is to, to try and get to, if I can get to 60 years old, that would be, that would be, that's my next goal after, after she graduates. We'll be right back. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We begin tonight with the sudden and very tragic death sending shockwaves across the country. Devastating and shocking news that actor Chadwick Boseman has died. At 43, after a valiant four-year fight, Chadwick Boseman lost his battle with colon cancer Friday. For four years, Chadwick Boseman had been quietly fighting colon cancer, making something like seven films while enduring countless surgeries and chemotherapy. When the Black Panther actor died in August of 2020, it was devastating to those who loved him as well as his legion of fans. It's not just a loss that we're feeling. We're going to feel his absence. His absence. But his death at such a young age also put colon cancer and some grave statistics in the spotlight. One, that more young people are being diagnosed with colon cancer than ever before. And two, that Black Americans are 20% more likely to get colorectal cancer and 40% more likely to die from it. Black Americans have the highest colorectal cancer incidence and mortality rates of all racial and ethnic groups in the United States. Dr. Edith Mitchell is a professor and oncologist at the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. We asked her, why? Why is the Black community hit hardest by this disease? So nobody knows for sure. What is known is there is a word called redlining. Policies on loans and the sale of properties. Uh, so that Blacks were relegated to certain parts of the city where there may have been a higher number of factories and other carcinogens, as well as poor water quality and other uh, socioeconomic conditions called the uh, social determinants of health. There were fewer healthcare facilities lack of supermarkets, drugstores, and other components of the healthcare uh, arena. When I tell patients that I want them to eat fresh fruits and vegetables, but there are none nearby where they live, that's a social determinant of health. And consequently, all of these components contribute to the development of cancers. So if we're going to, as a country, change healthcare disparities, we really need to focus on not only the um, disease process and medications, but on lifestyle that contributes to who we are. We are who we eat. And consequently, one zip code determines more effectively and more accurately how long you will live. 
as opposed to your genetic code, which you inherit from your parents. So we've got to change that so that our zip code is not the greatest determining factor on the disease processes that are experienced in a community, as well as the uh, duration of life. Dr. Mitchell says it's important to highlight the fact that Black men are 47% more likely to die from colon cancer, partly because they are still not getting screened at the same rates. It's culture. There's also the history. The Tuskegee study had only Black men. It was not discussed with them, and therefore they passed on uh, the disease to other Uh, sexual partners, and therefore put really three generations at risk. So Black men have a history of mistrust. And one thing that we have to instill in people is trust of the healthcare system. Black men prefer going to Black doctors, and yet for the United States, Of practicing clinicians in 2018, only 5% were Black, yet Blacks uh, constitute 13% of the United States population. So therefore, we need to develop uh, more diverse clinicians so that there is a greater percentage of Blacks in the population. With so few Black doctors, Black patients don't always get the care they deserve. Implicit bias or explicit bias really affects the interaction between the patient and the physician, as well as others on the healthcare team, so that we need to understand people who are different or who may look different. Uh, from us, and we have to learn how to uh, communicate effectively with all patients. It's well recognized that in many clinical situations that Black patients and other minority patients are treated differently. For example, there are studies that show that physicians and other clinicians spend less time in an examination room with a Black patient as opposed to a white patient or to someone who doesn't speak English as their primary language. There was also a study uh, and several studies showing that Black patients did not receive the recommendations for treatment options as white patients, for example, patients who had stage one lung cancer were offered different recommendations and not surgery as often as white patients. And of course, there could have been other reasons, but for stage one lung cancer, uh, surgery is the major treatment and can be curative. Yet the black patients were not offered surgery. Black patients are offered clinical trials less frequently 
And in many cases, it's the implicit bias uh, with the assumption that Black patients won't participate. So while you understand that there can be individual bias in healthcare delivery, there can also be institutional bias. So we really have to approach all of those topics to make sure that we have the 360, that is a full circle of all of the potential areas where we can intervene to improve healthcare delivery. A new test is not going to change redlining or the lack of supermarkets and other potential components of the atmosphere. It's not going to get rid of the factories and the exhaust. We've got to look at the whole picture and make sure that individuals living in certain zip codes are not disenfranchised from a good healthcare arena, that they have a good place to live, and making sure that the overall community is healthy. And therefore, we've got to change some of the social determinants of health uh, so that everybody has equal opportunity to live in a healthy environment in a healthy neighborhood. We have a moral imperative to fix this. Dr. Charlie Fuchs is an oncologist who is now leading the hematology and oncology team at the biotech firm Genentech. And it starts on many fronts, which is making sure that these communities have the proper access to information, education, nutrition, prevention, care, and frankly, access to clinical trials. You know, we talk about how low the rate is in the U.S. of patients in general participating in clinical trials. You know, you look at all these trials across the realm, and it's 5 8%, maybe 10% African-Americans. Well, we got to fix that, right? I mean, because I, I was involved in a study because the common perception, and in fact, is that Black Americans diagnosed with colon cancer who get treated have a worse outcome. And so what we did is we looked at a large clinical trial database that enrolled African-Americans and whites. And as you know, within a clinical trial, everything's prescribed, the treatment, the follow-up, everything, because you got to follow the menu because it's a clinical trial. And in the context of that clinical trial, there's no difference between white Americans and black Americans, meaning that there is no biologic difference. And if they get access to proper care, they do just as well. So it's a moral imperative. The, the fix here is not complicated. It's access to care. It's access to education. It's all the things that are plainly obvious. When we come back, we'll have more with Dr. Charlie Fuchs. We'll talk about the COVID effect on cancer screening, as well as new research and treatment. That's right after this. This is it. 
your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. Nerd Wallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I've known Dr. Charlie Fuchs for a few years now. He's a trusted and respected oncologist who has worked with us at Stand Up to Cancer. He was the director of the Yale Cancer Center, but he recently made the jump to the research and product development end of the health spectrum at the biotech firm Genentech in San Francisco. So he is, I think, the perfect person to sit down and talk about where we are now with colon cancer and what the future looks like. Here we are after the pandemic or on the verge of being post-pandemic, and so many people did not get screened. And that is translating to a lot of cancer deaths if we don't really sound the alarm. So are you concerned about this period of time and about people putting off screening? And what is the impact of that? No, I, Katie, I'm, I'm really concerned. The, the fact is, is that if you, every year, the American Cancer Society puts out the cancer statistics for the year, you know, cancer in particular last January was Cancer Statistics 2020. And, you know, as you know, in January, we didn't know what we were about to get ourselves into with the pandemic. And I was actually interviewed um, about the statistics in January of 2020, which showed this progressive decline in cancer mortality declines in cancer incidents. And one of those was colon cancer, right? We've made so much strides over the past three decades 
with early detection, with treatment, um, with understanding the genetics. And, um, you know, we were looking forward to continued declines. We're clearly not going to see that next year because the data are compelling. For instance, studies showed that in the first three months of the pandemic, there was an 80% drop in cancer screening, 80%. So we were at 20% of where we would have been the year before. And you just don't rapidly recover from that. And I can tell you, you know, what are we seeing? We're seeing people not getting screened. We're, we're going to be seeing, sadly, people who are now presenting with cancer, colon cancer at later stages. And we're going to see a backtrack. I, I don't think, you know, I think we need to be prepared for that reality. And what we have to do is just focus on what can we do today, which is return to screening. And as you know, the American Cancer Society, a number of organizations, even the Biden administration is now pushing that. And we have to remind people that it is safe to go back, that it's safe to get screened, that patients who are concerned about symptoms need to follow up with their doctor. Patients who are being treated for cancer shouldn't hesitate to get get their therapy on time in its full course. And these are the things that we have to do while at the same time, we have to make sure that we enable all our researchers to continue their work despite all the complications of the pandemic. You should get your first colonoscopy or your first colon cancer screen at age 45, according to the American Cancer Society and other organizations. Um, why was that lowered? That's exactly right. And to, to, just to be clear, clear, it's age 45 for an average risk person, because we could talk about what happens if you have a family history, which should be younger. But um, it was 50. And why is it now 45? Because, as you know, there's this very alarming trend of an increase in younger people with colon cancer that is under 50, under 40. And there's only speculation as why that is, but it's rising at a rate faster than probably any other cancer that is colon cancer under age 50. So thank goodness, various organizations, American Cancer Society among others, have now reduced it to 45. And hopefully that will have an impact. But this trend is alarming. It's alarming and it's also sort of maddening that you all, no offense, Charlie, haven't figured it out why this is happening. I mean, I know there's a lot of people studying this. This has been going on for a couple of years now. And uh, why are we no closer to understanding why this is happening? I heard obesity, you know, for years that that was one of the culprits. But it seems to me there must be other things going on here. And what's taking so long to figure it out? I think it's a fair criticism. I think part of it is obesity. Now, when I say that, when I give a lecture to a lay audience, I will tell you, invariably, I people appropriately come up to me at the end of my talk and say, much like you mentioned earlier, you know, my relative who was diagnosed at a young age was not obese. So I'm not suggesting to you that obesity is the only explanation. But I think we have to recognize and not deny the fact that obesity is a real risk factor for this malignancy, that there's no question that childhood obesity is an issue and has been an issue over the past several decades in this country that has to be dealt with. But it's not the only answer. We recently completed an analysis, and I will tell you, it's complicated. It's a very, the people under age 50 with colon cancer, it is a very heterogeneous group. 
And we're trying to look at the subsets, understand the genetics. Part of it is, I think, genetically driven. There's no question. Part of it, I think, is diet and lifestyle. And then there's an element we have to sort out. And I don't deny the fact that we have some catching up to do. In the meantime, I think, what can we do? We can make sure we're taking excellent family histories at the primary care setting, right? I mean, the problem is when I take a family history and I'm an oncologist, that's too late, right? That needs to happen at the primary care setting, right? Before any cancer. Definitely. We need to do that. We need to work on obesity. We got to get screening earlier. And let's be, let's be honest with ourselves. You know this because you authored the Katie Couric effect for colonoscopies. Getting people who are older to get colonoscopy was work. It's not going to be easy to get younger people to do it. And that's something we got to work on. I want to talk about screening in just a minute, but, you know, are there any other theories that are being studied right now? I remember uh, that there was some thought that it might be the overprescription of antibiotics that might somehow affect gut health or inflammation. What are what are scientists looking at as possibilities? Because um, when you say genetic, that doesn't necessarily just mean a family history of colon cancer, it could be a family history of other glandular cancers too, right? You know, if you have a history of breast cancer, for example, Jay, my late husband's mom had ovarian, his grandmother had breast. And there may be some kind of link between all these cancers or among all these cancers in a family, correct? Absolutely, that's a great point. I think what we're realizing is we started with what were the genes that we were just were decidedly in the biology of colon cancer. And we ident- we've been identifying those genes, but we've now realized, to your point, we did an analysis looking at the BRCA genes, the breast cancer genes, and found that potentially 4.5% of colon cancers were associated with that gene, which isn't on the list. And so we really need to think, we have to really question our assumptions about these genes and realize, yeah, if somebody's got a distinct family history of, of colon cancer, of, of breast cancer, rather, that colon's now probably on the list. And then there are, there are sort of subtle genes, not these sort of high penetrance genes, these genes that, you know, are 80% at risk, but genes that are a little more subtle in their effect that probably account for a lot of this. And not to get in the weeds, but genes like CHECK2 and some of the others that get talked about that's, these genes are probably accounting for a substantial number of colon cancers. We're just not fully appreciating this. So we have our work cut out in terms of understanding the genes. And, you know, I was going to say, there are a lot of genes that just haven't been discovered, right? That are floating around people's biologies, and we just just don't know what they are and the role they might play in cancer. Uh, but but what, are, what are some of the things that you're looking at and other people like you, Charlie, are looking at in terms of this alarming increase among young people? Well, we're doing very large population studies, and we're obviously getting diet and lifestyle data. We're getting family history data. We're characterizing the tumors genetically. We're, you know, at the same time, also trying to understand um, the outcome. Is it, is, is it a different disease? And we actually have a, an analysis that we're hoping to publish in the next several months about all some of these things. So we, I don't have an answer. I think that, it, it, but I will tell you in our last analysis, what was abundantly clear is this is a mix 
of, of causes of colon cancer. And I think part of the reason, Katie, we don't have an answer is because there isn't going to be one answer here. There's going to be several. And that is the lesson in cancer, right? It's not one disease. It's probably a hundred diseases. And a hundred and, and, and and, different, bi- well, really millions of diseases and million different, different biologies. And I think that's one thing, right? It's so the way I react to, or I don't even like to talk in the hypothetical, but the way one person reacts to maybe uh, uh, a potential cancer or cell mutation or something happening that kicks off cancer in his or her body is a lot different than the other person's biology. So it's really this delicate interplay between the disease and the host, if you will, right? The host organism. Oh, absolutely. You know, and we, I was talking to somebody about this recently. We did a study because let me just track back. You know, there are people who will tell you who get colon cancer who said, I don't understand this. I, I had a colonoscopy less than five years ago. And how could that be? Was there a mistake? This is a real phenomenon. So we actually did a study, Katie, of cancers that were diagnosed less than five years after a colonoscopy. And I don't want to alarm people with that or tell them not to get the colonoscopy because it works, but it's not perfect. And when we look at those cancers that happen within five years of a colonoscopy, they are biologically different. They're different in terms of the appearance. They're, they're flatter, they're harder to see, and they have different genetic etiologies, different genetic underpinnings. And so to your point, each of these cancers, in this case, colon, is it's a smorgasbord of genetic diseases. And that's the opportunity, right? As long as we're prepared to say, hey, you know what? I'm willing to develop a therapy where it's only going to work for 5% of colon cancer. Admittedly, as peculiar as that sounds, if we know what that 5% is, we're going to make real progress. You know, Charlie, for so long, I was the colonoscopy queen. And I still believe colonoscopies are the gold standard for detecting and treating and preventing colorectal cancer. But a lot of people can't afford them. A lot of people aren't getting them. One in three people are not getting any kind of tests, you know, when they're at, when they're age appropriate, in this case, 45. What about some of these other tests? I've been working with Exact Sciences, for example, a little bit on their at-home stool test. And, you know, one of the things I realized is the best test is actually the one that gets done. So can you talk to us a little bit about the differences between some of these like fecal occult blood tests and uh, fit tests and um, these at-home tests. And if you feel comfortable for certain people recommending them. Absolutely. I mean, I think to your point, people just have to get screened because I think the latest statistic, Katie, is that about 68% of people who should be screened for colon cancer aren't. Wow. So it's much higher than I thought. Yeah. So, you know, roughly about, you know, 32% of people are not getting screened who should be screened. Oh, no. So I was right. I said that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, but, you know, a third of the population not getting screened is is a problem. And that's 68 percent of any test. And to your point, there are a, a, a panoply of tests. Colonoscopy saves lives. It's an important test. It's safe. And I'm just going to be clear. If 
if you have access to colonoscopy and everyone should, that's what you should do. And I think you taught this nation, frankly, the world, a valuable lesson by volunteering to do that on television. And that's, for me, that's the lesson. If somebody's going to ask me what test, that's it. And I just, you know, I got a colonoscopy during the pandemic because like you, I want to send a message that it's safe to be screened and it's important. But if you can't, there are other tests. One is we know that colon cancer is a disease of genetic mutations in the tumor. And those those cells shed into the stool. And so you could detect those mutations in the stool. And so exact sciences, among other uh, places, have now developed tests where you can detect the mutation in the stool using very sensitive techniques. And I think it's it's a good test. It's an at-home test, particularly important in the middle of a pandemic. It It picks up a substantial number of colon cancers, not all of them. It's not great for picking up polyps, which is, as you know, the precursor. And frankly, what do we really want to find with a colonoscopy? We don't want to find a cancer. We want to find a polyp and remove the polyp, right? So you don't get cancer. Right. So, and to be the other aspect of the test of the stool is whether it be mutations or testing for blood in the stool or things like that. If it's positive, well, you still have to get a colonoscopy. So I think people should be aware of the fact that, yes, you can do the DNA test. And that's great because we want you to get a test, whatever it is you're prepared to do it. But if it's positive, you got to get that colonoscopy. Right. But it could weed out people who maybe are nervous about getting a colonoscopy or don't have access to it or can't afford it, right? Or don't don't have health insurance. And it could weed out those people so they know, well, I'm okay for now at least, right? But you're right to be able to remove a polyp is ideal. And in the middle of a pandemic, we have to be thinking about home testing, right? Because right now our health systems are extremely taxed. We're trying to reduce congestion in clinics, right? We have to. So I'm I'm a proponent of whatever test you can get. But um, when we're all back to normal and we're all vaccinated, Katie, I'm gonna be on my, you know, on my soapbox, get a colonoscopy. I I'm thrilled that we're working on DNA detection technologies for colon cancer. And listen, I hope that, you know, Dr. McCoy comes out with his tricorder and that's that's going to be the test. But in the meantime, it's still a colonoscopy. Are we any closer to better treatments for people who do have colon cancer that is advanced, maybe stage three or even stage four, which was Jay's situation? When he was diagnosed, it was all over his liver and it was on the march north to his lung and then the back of his eye and to his brain. And as you can imagine, it was harrowing. I was so livid that the treatment he received was the same treatment that had been around since the 50s, 5-FU and Leucovorin. And I was really, really frustrated by that. That was 23 years ago. Are there better, chemotherapeutic agents are there is there any progress being made in immunotherapy which is helping people in so many other cancers or in monoclonal antibodies and all the different 
kind of approaches. Is monoclonal antibodies the same as immunotherapy, Charlie, or different? Immunotherapy is one of the approaches of using monoclonal antibodies, but there are much broader approaches. But let me just step back, Katie, and say, look, um, given the tragedy that you and your family went through with Jay, it's so admirable of what you decided to do and take on this cause in the wake of that. And and you've made a big difference. I hope you know that on so many different fronts in terms of funding cancer research, in terms of building awareness and getting people to screen. I mean, you, you've done it all. And, and we owe you a lot for that, particularly in the wake of what was such a challenging time for you and the family and what Jay went through. But I do think we've made progress. Now, that was 23 years ago. And I would say a real inflection point in colon cancer that people should be aware is was 2004. And in 2004, um, the first of a series of monoclonal antibodies came out, which was a drug that actually realized that you could block the blood supply to tumors and impact therapy. That's a, and, that, isn't that an anti-angiogenesis? Are you talking about a Vastin? You're good, Katie. I, maybe you should be, maybe I should be interviewing you. <laughs> it was approved for colon cancer and it was a game changer. Um, and, and, and it, it was a game changer in so many different fronts. Firstly, one, it opened up a field, which is blocking the blood supply mattered, which opened up a litany of investigation. This works, Judith Volkman's original work, ultimately the drug developed by Genentech. And, but, but not only that, it was really the move to biologics, right? Because you know this because 5-fluorouracil was the only drug. And what we learned was, you know what? beyond standard cytotoxic chemotherapy, cell-killing chemotherapies, by understanding the biology, we can develop drugs that target the biology, monoclonals, because Avastin, as you know, is a monoclonal antibody. Will you explain for our listeners, because I actually could use a refresher, what exactly you mean when you say a monoclonal antibody? Absolutely. So we make, we all make antibodies to block infection. And these are little molecules that uh, are coded to cover the target, the surface of something, be it a bacteria or some other microorganism that shouldn't be in our bodies, right? Some, you know, something that infects us. But what people realized is you could develop antibodies in the lab that instead of targeting a bacteria can target some other surface that's relevant to cancer, be it the surface of a cancer cell or the surface of a molecule that stimulates blood supply for tumors. And so what Avastin is, it's an antibody that's designed in the lab that targets a, a molecule that makes that helps cancers develop a blood supply. So it essentially grabs it, blocks it, degrades it. And um, so you take that away from the cancer, the cancer is now starved of its blood supply. It's, it was really revolutionary at the time but what did it do? It essentially tripled the longevity of people with metastatic advanced colon cancer, tripled it. And it's still not where we want to be. We still have a long ways to go. But, you know, Katie, to your point earlier, when I first started in this field a long time ago, longer than I care to admit, when I would meet a new patient and family with advanced colon cancer, 
I would look at the patient and in my mind think, you know what, if, if I have this person sitting in my office a year from now and feeling good, that's an accomplishment that I'll be glad I could get to. And I'm, I'm not joking. That was my aspiration because the average survival for a new patient with colon cancer when I started in this game was nine to 10 months, which is ridiculous, totally inadequate. And so, you know, we're a lot longer now, but we got a ways to go. And each of these incremental steps teaches us about how do we leverage the biology? How do we develop new therapies? So we now have multiple antibodies hitting different targets. We have, I think, new drugs that are focused on really what was the biologic target as opposed to some random drug off the shelf. And we also know that colon cancer is not one disease, but a subset of diseases where there is a specific gene, gene that's driving it and we're targeting that gene. Now, the, the major advances that really we saw this tripling of survival in colon cancer, in advanced colon cancer, was really, I would say, between 2004 and 2012. And I, I'll be honest, I think we've languished a little bit since then, because you mentioned immunotherapy, which is a different type of monoclonal that activates our immune system, which has frankly revolutionized cancer therapy, truly revolutionized it, lung cancer, melanoma, a variety of difficult to treat cancers. However, that approach works for 4% of colon cancer patients. 96% don't benefit from it. Why? Because somehow the colon cancers are hostile to our immune system. And we got to figure out how to convert those cancers to being more amenable, more inviting to our immune system, such that we can leverage these drugs to attack the cancer. Well, why has it been so successful in other cancers? What is it about colorectal cancer that makes immunotherapy less effective? So it, what I think the other thing we've learned over the past two decades is we used to only focus on the cancer cell. But if you look at a tumor under the microscope, it's not just cancer cells. It's a variety of cells, right? immune cells, other types of cells that the cancer in some respects are recruiting for their own benefit. Now, one of those is our blood vessels, right? The cancer is recruiting blood vessels. What else is it recruiting? Colon cancer is clearly recruiting cells, our own cells that suppress an immune response. And it might seem simple, well, well, let's just turn those cells off. But it's not so simple how we do it. We don't fully understand how colon cancer recruits those cells to the tumor mm -hmm. and how we turn that signal off. But I think we're a lot closer in understanding that there's a number of new targets, new drugs to do that, that hopefully we then combine with the immunotherapies to make them work. So stay tuned. I, I, you know, I, I've been doing this for a while. I'm really optimistic of what this decade's going to do in cancer in general, but I think in colon cancer, because I think we're on the precipice now of taking these understandings of immunotherapy of the, of the microenvironment within a tumor, beyond the cancer cell, within understanding biologics, with targeted therapies, with genetics. And that's like, isn't that epigenetics, sort of the coding on the cell itself, right? That, that sometimes protects the cell 
from the medication, right? It's weird. It's like the cell has a little survival mechanism that's hard it's, to penetrate. It, well, there's that, and there's that because these are cells that are able to mutate. They are, even when therapies work, the cells figure out how to become resistant. They develop a, new, a second, third, fourth mutation, which I know seems almost impossible to beat. It's like whack-a-mole. But it's, we actually, I think, are understanding the underlying processes, like epigenetics, as you describe it, where I think we can beat it. Um, you know, cancer is the great challenge of the 21st century. You know, in the beginning of the last century, it was infectious disease, which is how ironic is we're in the middle of a pandemic now. But once we get past this, because we've done so much to eliminate infectious disease as the major killer of Americans, it's now cancer. And I really feel like we are poised to truly make a difference. Before we wrap up, I wanted to end with some thoughts from my friend Donna. After the colonoscopy and during the, the testing phase and biopsy and all, the doctor said that that tumor had to have been growing for the past two years. That it wasn't a young tumor, it was a tumor that was about two years old. So I just know from a personal experience that I should have at 50 gone in and got my colonoscopy. That's the lesson learned. So for those that are listening or however way the message is delivered, early detection is going to be a lifesaver. It, it truly, is going to be a lifesaver. So um, I encourage you all, uh, I mean, if it's 45, as soon as you go on your birthday, if you have to, when you turn 45, <laughs> go get the test. Um, but, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm not gonna look back because um, that's, not, that's not the message. The message is, is that I've learned a lot and I can help those that are going through it. Um, and the message is, go get tested. And if you're nervous about getting a colonoscopy, well, I've had a few, and I'm telling you, it's really not that bad. And I've got an insider scoop on the best way to prep. Back when I did my first colonoscopy, gosh, 21 years ago, I had to drink this gallon of nasty, salty, chalky, cherry-flavored water. Ugh. I put on a pretty good show for all of you. Mm, mm, mm. Looking forward to it. Ooh, here goes nothing. But it was terrible. What I didn't show in the piece is I actually threw up the last glass all over my kitchen floor. Shh. So instead, mix your favorite flavor of Gatorade with Miralax. Donna agrees. I'll do that again. <laughs> I highly recommend that. Thank you again to all my guests today, Donna Otis, Dr. Edith Mitchell, and Dr. Charlie Fuchs. Now you all know what to do. Talk to your doctor and go get tested. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. Associate producers, Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. 
For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecurric.com. You can also find me at katiecurric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.